Glad you're all here. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 10. One of the things I love about this story is we're going to actually see this real tension between hospitality and entertainment. Um, entertainment is a counterfeit hospitality. Entertainment is rooted in what the guests think of us and whether or not they're happy and satisfied. And hospitality is more about service. It's more about lovingly serving others and making sure that we're meeting the needs of those around us. And so let's read this together. Luke chapter 10. It's a very short text, verses 38 to 42. Now as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So, Father, we ask that you would help us by giving us illumination into your word. Thank you, God, for what you're going to teach us. We've been studying together as a church for these many weeks about what hospitality is, and I pray that you would use this message to contribute to that understanding, to help us have a well-rounded understanding of biblical hospitality, a gospel-centered approach to loving and serving others with whatever resources we have so that you would be glorified. And so, God, would you be pleased this day to teach us even more, and we'll give you thanks for what you show us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to review a little bit about where we've been because that will serve as kind of a backdrop and kind of a foundation for what we're going to do today. So there's three things that we've been talking about. First is this, is hospitality involves welcome. And welcome, as you remember, is an invitation where you receive someone into your life and into, your home, uh, into a space like a home. And it's also, uh, welcome is the idea that you take someone by the hand and you walk them to a place of safety. And so we can understand hospitality as an opportunity to invite someone into a place where they can be uh, comforted, where they can be healed, where they can be restored and things like that. We do the comforting and Jesus does the healing. And so those are great ways to think about hospitality. It gets us out of the idea that hospitality is merely about entertainment. It really is about providing a rich welcome, the same kind of welcome we, we have received from God we then extend it to others. And so we invite people into the presence of God by being in our presence, that kind of thing. Not that we are God, but we, we exude um, the grace that we ourselves have received from Jesus. We also talked about how hospitality is the great connection between both love and service. We saw this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, where we are supposed to love one another earnestly. And then also we should be serving one another with the strength that God provides. And the connection between love and service is really found in hospitality. Hospitality is the place where we generously leverage our resources and loving service of others for the glory of God. And so that is a remarkable thing is to make sure what's remarkable in that is to make sure that when we love others and we serve others, we don't do so begrudgingly. We don't you know, despise the people we serve and things like that because it just will fall, you know, as like a shallow, hollow kind of service and people will hear us say with words we love them, but they will discern and they will sense that we don't actually love them. Um, a real life practical example of this is, uh, I don't know if you've ever eaten at Chick-fil-A, but if you've ever eaten at Chick-fil-A and you ever say to somebody who's an employee there, thank you, they will say in reply, my pleasure. Now, we know it's a Christian-owned company, and they actually train their employees intentionally to respond to every thank, uh, thank you that they get with that sense of my pleasure because they want to communicate the idea that it is not drudgery to have to serve us as customers. It is actually something that they enjoy. And so they say, it's my pleasure. And so that's just one of those simple examples of the difference between serving others out of drudgery and kind of disdain and serving people jo uh, joyfully with a glad heart. Remember what John Piper said, how, how he defines love. Love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. And so it's important we understand that love is both an emotion and deed. And so we need to make sure that our deeds are matching our heart's attitude in that situation. Remember the Apostle Paul as well. He was motivated in his ministry and encouraging the churches that they would continue to progress, remember, in the faith and also in their joy. 
And so the, he was motivated to, um, that people would continue to be sanctified, continue to be made more and more like Jesus, and that they would progress in their joy in the faith as well. And then the third thing is this, is that practicing hospitality is a way to display the power of the gospel to bring people together in Christ. And so the unity of the church is found through the spirits uniting people from different backgrounds, people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And so the power of the gospel is, is displayed in the church when people of varying backgrounds find their unity with one another in the person of Christ. And so as we as a church continue to find our unity in Christ and we look around us seeing people who differ from us in all kinds of ways, that is one of the most potent ways to display the power of the gospel. If you remember, those of us who have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have publicly declared that we are identifying as members of the church. And as such, we remember in Galatians 3.27, in the church there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that people aren't these things anymore and we're walking around as druids or something like that. It's, it's the reality that we don't regard one another based on these socially div, um, divisions, but instead we regard one another by our identity in Christ. And as the body of Christ, as the church, we regard one another as blood-bought people. We see each other with the reality that Jesus shed his blood to purchase a people. And that people, as First uh, Peter 2, 8 says, is a chosen nation, a holy priesthood. And these, this people that God has purchased by his blood, we are to regard one another collectively as, oh, you're my brother and sister in Christ whom Jesus has purchased by his blood. And therefore, the adopting love of God is bestowed upon you ever much as it's bestowed upon me. And so we do not regard one another according to societal markers of race, Jew or Greek, or economic and social standing, slave or free, or gender, male and female. Instead, we regard one another based on our identity in Christ. And this we see even in the end when we arrive in the new heavens and new earth where we get to feast with Jesus the marriage supper of the Lamb, as it's called. We see there in Revelation 5, 9 and 10, that the multitude in heaven are singing to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth forever. Jesus desires his church to be comprised of multi-ethnic multi-generational people and this is only possible because the gospel transcends it it stands above and beyond culture geography and also sociological boundaries and so in the church we see the gospel's power made most evident manifested in this idea that this is a people from all walks of life who find their unity, not in their likeness, but they find their unity in Christ. And God is doing that by the Holy Spirit. And it is a marvelous and wonderful thing. And so that kind of serves as the background or the, uh, the foundation for what we're going to see in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, where we see how hospitality and entertainment really are in tension with each other. And what, like I said, uh, in, excuse me, entertainment is the idea that we're most concerned with our guests. We're most concerned with what they think. We're most concerned with impressing them and using whatever we have to kind of woo them and knock their socks off, that kind of thing. You know, in a book that has been so um, informative for me in this hospitality uh, series, it's a book by Rosaria Butterfield, and it's entitled The Gospel Comes with the House Key. And in that, she writes this, one reason that too many Christians fail to practice ordinary, radical Christian hospitality is that we have become so duped and distracted by its counterfeit that we don't know what we need. The household that loves things too much and loves people too little, it cannot honor God through the practice of radically ordinary hospitality. The household that has too much and thinks too highly of material possessions, has become seduced by idols, the idols of acquisition and achievement. If you love acquisition and achievement, you will never practice hospitality. 
Sometimes Christians tell me, she writes, that they don't practice hospitality because they don't have enough space, dishes, or food. They fear that they do not have enough to give. This is a false fear that no one should heed. Hospitality shares what there is. That's all. It's not entertainment. It's not supposed to be. And I love what she says because she really does expose the idols that many of us have. The idol of achievement and the idol of acquisition. We want our stuff and we want to make sure we preserve our stuff. And really hospitality challenges the idol of stuff because hospitality asks the question, what do you have? And whatever your answer is to what do you have, the gospel compels us, whether it's much or whether it's little, spend it. Spend it in loving service of others. But those of us who are idols in this way, where we are committed to the acquisition of more stuff and the achievement, we won't want to be hospitable because it will threaten our idols. And so hospitality is really the antidote to this kind of selfishness. What I would say is we should not give in to hospitality's counterfeit, which is entertainment. And we're going to see that kind of play out here in our text. Verse 38, now as they, and that pronoun they is in reference to Jesus and his disciples. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. Now we know that village to be the village called Bethany. And we know that because Mary and Martha, who we're going to meet here, they had a brother named Lazarus. And we know that the three of them lived in this little place called Bethany, which is two miles south of Jerusalem. You can read about that in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. So they arrive in this little village called Bethany. And it says a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And so we understand that hospitality consists of this notion of welcome. And so we see Martha welcoming Jesus and the disciples into the house. In other words, she's being hospitable. And now we're introduced to her sister named Mary, verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now just picture this for a moment. Martha opens up her door, welcomes Jesus and the disciples in. And then there's Mary, her sister, who goes with Jesus presumably into the living room where they all sit down and perhaps just begin to talk. And there's Mary. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus just listening soaking in everything that he has to say, his teaching. And there's, there's, the room is probably filled with the other disciples and perhaps Lazarus is somewhere in the mix. But where does Martha go? Well, obviously Martha's not with Mary and the others. She's somewhere else. Um, more than likely, since Martha was the one who welcomed Jesus, Martha is the one who is the hospitable one, we could say. And maybe as people went into the living room, she made a turn and went to the kitchen. After all, somebody's got to feed all these people. So somebody has to do something. And you know how it is. When you got people in the house, it's not just spontaneous most of the time. You made a list. You got a plan, and you're about to execute that plan. You went to Costco. You got all the frozen hors d'oeuvres. You're ready to go. And so you better get those things heated up. You better get them out there. You got hungry people. And you kind of see that kind of difference that's happening right here. You see this. Um, divergence. But then we encounter something which is really interesting, verse 40. The first word is but, which is telling us that we're about to see a contrast, the contrast between Mary and Martha. Mary's at the feet of Jesus, but Martha was distracted with much serving. The word distracted here means to be pulled away from. It's the idea that you are intent on accomplishing a particular purpose, you're focused on it, your attention is being poured into this one thing, but something else comes along and then takes you from that original thing and brings you into something else. And so you are dragged away or you're pulled away, you are distracted. And it says that Martha was distracted with much serving, which means she's being pulled away from something towards her serving. Now, we have to understand that what Martha is doing is good. She is serving those who are in her home. She's just welcomed them into her home. This is good. Her intention is good and right. It's good to have lists. It's good to have an idea of what you want to serve. It's good to, if people are hungry, to feed them. It's totally good to do all of this. In fact, hospitality, this kind of service is essential to it. It's important that we do it. 
It's a significant part of it. But if you notice, Martha is being distracted with much service. And so this is telling us something. The goodness of service itself has been lost, and something else is going on. And what I would say is, in this context of hospitality, Martha is serving, yes and amen, you should do that, but she has allowed the service to become ultimate. It's the ultimate thing that she is about. And so I'm going to make sure to be crystal clear because I don't want anyone, we're, we're sinful people. Generally, when we hear things like this, we're always looking for loopholes. We're looking for ways to get out of, you know, being obedient. And so when we see something like this, we're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, she was distracted with serving. So obviously the solution is don't serve. That is not what I said. <laughs> I want to make sure you are very aware of that reality. I did not say it's okay to not serve. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He says, Martha's fault was not that she served. The condition of a servant well becomes every Christian. Martha's fault was that she grew encumbered with much service so that she forgot Jesus and only remembered the service. And so in other words, her role as host led her to ignore the guests. And if you think about it, when you're hosting, the only reason you even have the, the title host is because you have guests. And so if you ignore the guests, you're a terrible host. You can't be a good host at the neglect of your guests. And so that's what's happening here. You see Martha, she's a great host up to a point, except for she has gone a different direction and she went into the kitchen to do what is essential, to do what is important, to do the service and prepare the hospitality, perhaps food and whatnot. But it was at the neglect of her guests. And it doesn't matter how delicious your hors d'oeuvres are or how beautiful and pretty your centerpiece is. If you ignore your guests, you're not a very good host. And so here we are seeing Martha being distracted. What do we do about this? Well, here's what we need to do. We must be vigilant in our hospitality because there are various components of hospitality that can become the focus and the motivation. In other words, there's different aspects of hospitality that can soon become the ultimate thing. And so where you're inviting people into your life and into your space and perhaps you're eating a meal together because that's the context here and there's various ways that this plays out. You could be hospitable at your work as you eat lunch with coworkers, on your commute as you're inviting people to sit down next to you. There's ways to be hospitable at grocery stores and in parks and all kinds of ways. We talked about that stuff at the Initiate Conference. There's a multitude of ways to be hospitable. But if in the midst of our hospitality... We find a component of our hospitality and we make that thing the ultimate thing at the neglect of the one who we are extending hospitality to, then all of a sudden we run the risk of making that little component the ultimate thing and then we begin to neglect the person and then everything begins to spiral out of control as we're about to see. So we need to be vigilant that we don't allow our hospitality and components of it to become the ultimate thing. For instance, if you are at your home and you have guests over, but you don't greet them or perhaps you don't engage with them and you're not having a conversation with them because you're over at the stove fussing about with the beans or the, the corn or something like that, then what you are subtly telling the person is this corn is more important than you. I'm more important than corn. I don't care what you say. <laughs> and so choose conversation over fussing about the food. And the only way to do that is to kind of get things prepared so that way you can receive your guests. What we're going to see is that true hospitality is going to come when a community has all the components of service and hospitality but in proper proportion. 
You see, this is what we call sun, um, this is small group Sunday, which is a Sunday that we take every year where we just want to stop and make sure that we as a church are reminding ourselves about the small group ministry, its significance and importance and the role of discipleship and how we practice it here at Golden Hills. And so we're advertised about what we're doing as far as the Galatians series and about our sermon-based series. But what I'm going to try to do is kind of show us how this community that's happening in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus how this is kind of an example of how small groups can get sideways real quick. This kind of community can actually implode. And so I want to highlight some things about this that may actually translate into our small groups or may translate into our discipleship groups. It can, it can be a great encouragement to us in that way. Look at verse 40, the rest of it. Martha was distracted with much serving, and so she goes up to Jesus and she says something. Now, when we read this, I need you to understand what's going on here and how she's saying it. This is not bashful Martha going into Jesus. Oh, shucks, Jesus. I, I kind of want to say something, but I don't really know how to say it. Um, hold on. Let me find my words. Mm, it's not like that. Martha is coming into the living room, hand on hip, neck on a swivel, like she just stepped in a full-blown bowl of sassy. And she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? You better tell her to come help me. You get that? It's that like we've either been recipients of that kind of thing or we've done it. But my thought is like what in the world has happened to Martha that has brought her to a place where she comes in and she speaks to the God of the universe in such a way? Just, mm hmm, you better, mm, man. Whoa. And so what we see is there's four examples in Martha where we see how actually the community that is forming in Martha and Mary's house is being spoiled. Because the reality is community is a gift of God, but it can be quickly spoiled if we are not careful and vigilant to make sure that components of our hospitality don't become ultimate. If they do become ultimate, be warned, the community will spoil and the hospitality will become sour. So there's four things we see in Martha. Here's number one. Because of the hospitality and service that Martha is doing, she's pulled away from Jesus and from the community. Notice the, the community, Jesus and the disciples are in the living room, but she's where? In the kitchen. She's away from them, and so she's alienated herself from her guests. Now, I know there's some people that think, oh, what's so wrong about that? But, but if you think about it, alienating yourself from a community can oftentimes be a dangerous place because you don't have others to speak truth into your life, and you don't have people to see the places in your life that you're blind to. We all have blind spots, and if we're not careful, we'll just assume the blind spots, you know, the places we don't see, we'll assume they don't exist, and then we'll assume that our perspective of everything is 100% accurate and right and is unobjectionable. And many of us who are married, we understand sometimes our kids are like that, spouses like that, in-laws like that, you get it. We all have blind spots. And what's interesting is Martha's just alienated, separated herself from everyone else. And so this is causing some of her distraction. When we get fixated on the service as ultimate, we can soon find ourselves neglecting others. And in a Christian context, we, context, we can soon find ourselves neglecting Jesus. You see, there's nothing wrong with making plans. There's nothing wrong with making lists. There's nothing wrong with recruiting help or researching tips how best to host people. But sometimes we'll notice that our prayer turns into a, functionally, a functional thing where we're merely asking God to bless our plans, the very plans that we never asked him if we should have in the first place. We just say, this is my plan. God, you need to make sure that it happens. And so we neglect Jesus. We neglect the input of God. And not only that, but sometimes our service can lead us to a place of self-sufficiency where we slowly distance ourselves from others because we think we have important ministry to do and these people are just getting in the way. 
And so we distance ourselves from people. But then what you see is in Martha, not only has she alienated herself and distanced herself, but then all of a sudden self-pity starts to set in. Do you see all the me statements she said? Look at this in verse 40. Lord, do you not care that my sister? Notice not even Mary. She walks into the room. Mary's sitting right there, and she goes, Lord, do you not even care that Mary's not helping me? No, no, no. Because she sees everything through the lens of self. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? This is the tinge of where Martha is beginning to feel sorry for herself. She's overwhelmed, perhaps, by the service that needs to happen. She's increasingly overwhelmed by the to-do list, perhaps. And so she begins to sulk, and she begins to feel pity, and she begins to think, woe is me. I'm all alone. It's only me. No one cares. Philip Graham Ryken, in his commentary on Luke, he writes this, When our feelings of self-pity take over, we have stopped serving Jesus at all. We are serving ourselves and thinking only about what our ministry is or is not doing for us. And so when we get in a place of self-pity, what we've done is we've looked at the people that we're supposed to be serving and we're no longer seeing them. We're seeing the service itself. And we're seeing the service itself not satisfying us. And so then what we do is objectify the people we're serving and we see them and their needs only as potential enhancements to our self-improvement project. And if they aren't contributing to the enhancement of my identity, they aren't helping me feel good about myself, then I become filled with pity and I feel sorry for myself and I begin to dislike the people I'm supposed to be serving. I will resent them because they're not making me feel good about me. And that's what happens with Martha. Her self-pity turns into resentment. You know what resentment is? Resentment is the idea that the people around you, you're just so disgusted by them. And in this context, it's because they're not helping. You're like, ugh. I don't even want to be around you. Ugh. And you can see how sour Martha becomes. Because she says to Jesus, tell her to come help me. Once again, doesn't use the name Mary at all. I don't even want to look at that girl. I don't even want to name her. She's just some lazy old girl just sitting on her butt in the other room, not lifting a finger. So Martha tells Jesus, you need to tell that lazy girl to get in here and to come help me. You can imagine Martha, before she comes out, what was probably happening in the kitchen. Before she ever came out and talked to Jesus, you know what was going on in there. She was stewing. I don't know about you, but I've done this before, and I've also been in the other room when it was happening, but it goes something like this. You know, you got people in the backyard because maybe you're having a barbecue or you got the game on and so you're kind of like hosting people and whatnot and everyone's gathered and milling around talking. Meanwhile, you're in the kitchen. Now, you got to get the meat ready and so you got to cut it up, right? But no one's offering to help and so you go into the kitchen to get the serving tray and you pull it out of the counter and you're looking in the other room like, for real? No one's going to come help me? All right, you put it down, no problem. Plop the meat on there, you're about to cut it up and whatnot. And pretty soon you look around and you have the bag of salad that you're about to make and you shake it around and it makes all that plastic crinkling sound. Nobody turns. <laughs> like, uh-uh, these fools are thinking I'm making everything. I'm not making everything for them. <laughs> so then you get right underneath the counter where the serving bowls are and you got to make the salad, right? So you have the plastic serving bowls, you've got the glass serving bowls, but you realize what you need to get, you need to get the metal serving bowls because those make the loudest noise. So as you take them out, you're making sure the inner bowl is hitting the outer bowl and it's making all the noise and cling, 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 cling. And so you finally pull it out and then you bah, slam it on the counter, open up the bag, lettuce flies in the air, dump that thing out, and you're stirring it up. <laughs> but you stir it up with like wooden or metal tongs that hit the side, cling, 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 cling. And you want, you want to make sure everybody knows. And then you need the serving dishes, right? I mean, the serving utensils, right? So you open the drawer, you're making sure, you're not even looking, you just know where the spoons are generally, but you're like, cling, 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 cling. you finally get it out, <laughs> you close that drawer, it kind of shakes and everyone's 
what's going on in there? And you're like, oh, what's going on in here? Let me tell you what's going on. You see what I'm saying? We've all done that. Come on. And also, we've been in the other room where we're kind of like, I'm not, I'm not making eye contact. <laughs> and then it happens. The uncle, grandpa, you need some help in there? And what always is said next? No, I got it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Human nature, man, I'll never understand this. Think about what kind of resentment and selfishness is going on in you when that is happening. And when people tell me, no, I think people are basically good. I don't think people are selfish or sinful at all. It's those kinds of examples I go, really? What world are you living in? Because that's an example of just us being sinful, us being selfish, us being, us being so self-centered and like we just gravitate towards only our stuff that we can't even serve others with joy anymore. And so there's Martha just resent, resentful. Riken says this, imagine. One minute Martha is welcoming Jesus into her home with joy. The next minute she was busy in the kitchen. And the next minute after that she was making a scene out in the living room. Do you see how quickly hospitality and community can be spoiled if we're not vigilant? Just like that. And so we need to be vigilant in our hospitality and our service. We can't allow the service to become ultimate. And this even happens in the church at times. Where we don't serve because we want to ultimately serve Jesus. We find ourselves, if we're not careful, serving the service itself. And the service itself becomes our Lord and our Master. I've had this happen to me before. I remember serving in student ministries for a number of years. And I remember looking at people in the church, at another church I was at in Southern California. And I remember looking at people in the church and I'm thinking, man, we could use like two or three more people to help. And look at all these people getting together and they're not doing nothing. Bunch of lazy old church. Oh, yeah, I'll go to church. Yeah. <laughs> and then pretty soon you hear the statistics. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And I'm like, well, I'm 20% of the people. Look at all these lazy people not doing nothing. And what ends up happening is we begin to resent our brothers and sisters in Christ because they haven't made my particular ministry their priority. You get that? And so sometimes we can look at others and just build ourselves up by saying, man, aren't I awesome? Look at what I'm doing. Look at these disgusting people. So lazy. Let's not be like that, church. And then Martha does the unthinkable. This is the fourth thing. She blames Jesus. <laughs> Lord, she says, do you not care? Tell her then to help me. Jesus, you are contributing to the problem here. Don't you realize that your inactivity is causing Mary to be like this and you are ruining my life? Do something. <laughs> you know, at times we can even get like that where we begin to blame God for our sin. God, you did this. You made me like this. You made my sister lazy. <laughs> you gave me this passion for this ministry. It's not my fault they're not passionate and disobedient. It's your fault, God. Do you even care, she asks. What is it that gets us to the point that we begin to throw shade on Jesus? <laughs> what is it in us that causes us to become resentful and selfish? I grew up in a home where hospitality was a given. Just a given. We had people living with us who were in need. My parents threw the absolute best barbecues. 
And what I loved about the way I grew up is we had black folks and white folks, Turkish folks, Hispanic folks. I had guys from my football team. I was the only white dude among them. My parents would make food, and we'd have half the football team, 30 of us over there, eating. And I was raised in an environment where to be selfish and to think only of yourself and ignore your guests was unthinkable. Oh, that we would be like that. And what is Jesus going to do to Martha? <laughs> Let me ask a different question. If you were Jesus, what would you do to Martha? <laughs> but I won't ask that question. What is Jesus going to do to Martha? He says in verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. What you sense in this response of Jesus is such tenderness. There is such gentleness in his response. He knows that she is agitated. He knows that she's all worked up. And so he uses her name twice. And when in the Bible you read and there's, there's things that happen twice, like uh, you'll see truly, truly, I say, Jesus will say from time to time, it's to get our attention. Martha, Martha. And you can imagine Jesus is reeling her in. Martha. Come here. I recognize what's going on. I see your anxiety. I see your trouble. And what I love about what Jesus does is he does not dismiss her service at all. He does not disregard her. He does not belittle her. He acknowledges her reality. He affirms that she is feeling anxious and she feels troubled. Notice he doesn't just dismiss her going, why are you acting like this? What's wrong with you? It's not that big a deal. Get over it. He doesn't do anything like that. Martha, Martha, I see. I see that you're anxious. I see that you're troubled. And what Jesus does is he recognizes her. He affirms her. He's loving her. He's acknowledging her. But in all of that acknowledgement, and in all of that affirmation and all of his gentleness, he's rebuking her, which means he's correcting her. He's telling her, this is wrong. We know that Jesus loves her because John eleven five says so. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Told you. And it's from this love that Jesus is rebuking Martha. It's from a position of deep affection that he is willing to speak the truth to her in gentleness. And do you notice why Jesus is rebuking her? It's not because she's not doing anything. It's that she's doing the good deeds she should do, but she's doing them without the heart attitude that is associated with it. Remember when I talked about how we can't equate love with deeds? Because you can do all kinds of deeds without a heart of love. That's what we're talking about here. Martha is doing all of these deeds. These are all good deeds, service deeds, necessary deeds. But she's doing them from a heart that is not right. And so Jesus is pushing back on her heart attitude and saying, something's off here. You're troubled about many things. You're anxious. And then she says in verse 42, but one thing is necessary. I just stopped there and I was reading this and I'm thinking, man, I would love to know what that one thing is. But he never says. Doesn't that frustrate you? You're like, I just, I just want to know what the one thing is. And he doesn't mention it. There's only one thing necessary, Martha. what and then he just goes on <laughs> Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her Jesus uses a play on words here that word portion there is is referred is used in reference to food and so what Jesus is saying is look Martha you need to understand that Mary's been with us in the other room she's been sitting 
at my feet, listening to my teaching. But, but you have to realize she is having her portion. She's having her food. You see, you're in the kitchen and you're getting together the, the food and you're getting together, you know, what is needed for us to feast together. But you have to realize your sister Mary is having her own meal and she's feasting. She's feasting at my feet. She's feasting on my teaching. She's feasting on my presence. She's feasting on all that I have to offer. But you have chosen to alienate yourself and distance yourself from me. And so she's eating the good portion and you are neglecting it. Remember Matthew 4? For man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it says that her portion will not be taken away from her. In other words, the feast that Mary is enjoying is a feast that will truly last. You'll get hungry tonight. But Mary's spiritual hunger is thoroughly satisfied. And so I think in the context, the one thing necessary that he's referring to is this. Jesus is saying, I'm the necessary one. I'm the one thing you need to be preoccupied with. I am the one thing that needs to be your utter necessity. There are a million other good things. There's a million other essential things. There's a million other good deeds that we can do. But you have to realize all of them should be informed and shaped by the one necessary thing, which is me. Does Martha learn her lesson? Does she repent? Does she turn from her sin of selfishness and trust Jesus to give her grace and forgiveness? And I think the answer is a resounding yes. I found it in John 11 when I was reading it. My heart was just so touched. Remember when Lazarus dies? And somebody tells Jesus, Lazarus is dead, and so he sticks around where he's at for a couple more days because he loved them? And then he decides to go to Bethany and some people inform Mary and Martha in their home that Jesus is on his way. And so Mary and Martha are in their home with a whole bunch of mourners and a whole bunch of people who are comforting them in their grief. And when Martha catches wind that Jesus is on his way, look at what she does in John 11 verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Maybe Mary's lazy after all <laughs> but nonetheless here's Martha who is the typical host who has a house filled with guests and when she hears Jesus is on the way what does she do she leaves the guests and she prioritizes Jesus she repented she learned her lesson she prioritizes Jesus. Beautiful. So what can we learn from this? I have three applications that I came up with. There's probably others that you can come up with, but I have the microphone. <laughs> so Luke chapter 11, in verse 42, Jesus teaches something which I think is profound. And I'll, I'll, I'll read it, and then I'll, I'll say what the application is. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What Jesus is saying is you do all this stuff, which is good, but there are weightier things that you need to pay attention to, like justice and the love of God, and you've neglected the weighty things in favor of the minor things. And when it comes to hospitality and service, and here's the application, we need to make sure that we major on the major things and not major on the minor things. The major thing of hospitality is God's grace to us that he has welcomed us into relationship with him by utter grace. We did not deserve it. We have not done nothing to achieve it, but God has wooed us to himself and has pulled out a chair and has invited us to take a seat at his table. And so in light of the grace of God lavished on us in the gospel through the shed blood of Christ and the resurrection, 
that made it possible for us to be reunited with God, we, in the joy of that truth, go out and we are welcoming of others. That is the major thing. Not doilies, pigs in a blanket, centerpieces, throw pillows. So major on the major things. Secondly, Jesus is to be preeminent, which means most important, to be first among all things so that our service flows from our abiding in Christ. If you remember in Romans 15, 7, it reads, Therefore, let us welcome one another. And then there's our two-letter word, which is significant. It says, as. As Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Which means the way in which Jesus has welcomed us into relationship with him serves as the pattern and the example for how we should go and welcome others as well. So we should be willing to give of ourselves sacrificially, lovingly, in order to serve others. Because that's the pattern that Jesus has left for us to do. And so we make sure that in all of our serving, that we are putting Jesus front and center. You see, even in a small group context or a discipleship context, as good as those things can be, they can sometimes devolve into a self-focused entity where a small group gets together with no major priority other than just being together. And so we don't ask ourselves the question, how are we going to meet with Jesus tonight? Instead, we say, who's cooking what? What kind of food are we going to have? What kind of drink are we going to have? Who's going to be there? And sometimes if we're not persistent and vigilant and aware, our small groups become thin communities because Jesus is not necessarily invited to be among us. He's an afterthought or he's assumed, but he's not front and center. And so I would implore our small groups and small group leaders, make much of Jesus. We read that apart from him, we can't do anything. We read it in John 15, verse 4, where Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, many of us are trying to do hospitality and we're trying to do service and we're trying to love people with whatever energy that we can manufacture within ourselves. And when we do that, we will find ourselves quickly depleted and we will find ourselves quickly burned out because we must abide in Jesus for in abiding in Jesus, we are like a vine connected to the branch. We are, we are this, this part of this whole thing. And so Jesus being the whole thing is pushing all the nutrients out. And so unless we're connected to Jesus, the nutrients can't flow to us. And you have to remember, God's supply is infinite. So long as we stay connected to Jesus, we have at our disposal an infinite supply of love and grace so that we won't ever be burned out. But we must come to God regularly. We must approach the throne of grace with confidence. And in that coming to Jesus in confidence, we can call in the promises of God, of which are this, when you labor and toil in my name, I will supply the grace and the strength for you to do it. And so approach the grace with confidence, or approach the throne of grace with confidence, trusting that God will provide you with what you need in your time of need. And when you do that, and you're abiding in the Christ, and you're reflecting on the gospel, remember the gospel is the power of God for salvation, but it's also the only thing in the New Testament outside of God himself described as the power of God. It is also the very thing that in us produces what we need to live obediently is power. And so abide in Christ. Lastly, in your hospitality, leave room to prioritize the image bearers among you. What I mean is simply this. God has made humanity in his image. And you are surrounded by people who are image bearers of God. 
And that means that every human being you ever encounter has inherent worth and value. They have dignity. Our culture tells us that a human being has their dignity and their value and their worth generated from either achievement or development. So if somebody says we need to treat each other equally and and equitably and justly, and we come back and say why, you will expose the roots that Christians have a greater foundation and a greater reason to be just and equitable than those who are not Christians. Because in our world, people are saying we should treat each other justly and fairly and equitably based on achievement or development. Some people are more valuable than others. That's why celebrities are in magazines and you're not. But the Christian teaching is this, no. It is not based on your achievement or your development that you have inherent worth and value. It's because you bear the image of God. And what that also means then is this. We as Christians have every reason in the world to believe from the moment of conception until the point somebody dies because that is a person made in the image of God regardless of their stage of development, whether in the birth canal or in the womb or outside, that person has inherent dignity and value. And it is not based on how developed they are or what they have achieved. We say, regardless of your skin color, your achievement, your education, your status, because you are a human being made in the image of God, you have dignity. So, in our hospitality, brothers and sisters, let us make room for the image bearers among us. Let's grant dignity and respect. Let's honor our guests. Let's joyfully serve them. Let's meet needs gladly. Let us leverage our resources generously for the glory of God and for our joy. So Father, thank you for this series in hospitality that you have walked us as a church through. In everything that we have learned, it first starts with the fact that no matter how much we love others, it's because you have first loved us. We thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your adopting love. We thank you that in our selfishness, in our sinfulness, in our hatred of you, in our hatred of others, that even though we were your enemy, you died for us. And by your grace, you have called us to relationship with you. You've invited us to repent and believe the gospel. And in our repentance and believing of the gospel, you welcome us into your family and you give us a seat at your table. Because of your adopting love for us, you tell us that we are valuable and loved. And then you tell us to go and do likewise. So God, would you, for us as a church here at Golden Hills Community Church, would you compel us because of the great love with which you have loved us, may we go and extend that love to others in all ways of hospitality. God, teach us how to be generous with our resources, to lovingly serve others, and to have our eye always on your glory and not ours, so that in serving others, that we would be filled with joy. God, would you do this for us? Because apart from you, we can do nothing. So do it, we ask, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.